The Gospel reading is from Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's great to be with you. Good morning again. Um, welcome to In Town. If you're visiting with us, you're here on a on a good Sunday to get introduced to In Town. We're starting a new series uh, called the ABCs of In Town. And um, about five years ago, I had been at this church for two years, and we did a sermon series called Renew, and it was on our core values. And it was uh, probably the most divisive sermon series that we've done. Um, some people loved it. Um, some people didn't. Uh, and I got more letters and had to have more conversations during that time than probably any other sermon series. And so after about five years of licking my wounds and being gun-shy about doing this, we've, I'm doubling down, and not just 11, but we're doing 23 sermons on what is in town and why are we here. Um, but to keep it interesting, we're not just going to jump around all over the Bible, but we're going to look just at the Gospel of Matthew. So I hope that through this series, you'll not only get introduced to the ABCs of InTown, but also to the Gospel of Matthew as a whole, and that he will become a good friend in this journey. So I'm going to actually uh, talk about our mission statement or read it each and every Sunday and you'll notice as we begin um, that community is bolded. And what we're going to do is each of the primary words um, we're going to attach three or four sermons to. And so the first one is community. And that will occupy us for the next three weeks. So in town, Presbyterian Church is a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. Let's pray for our time together. Dear Lord, I pray that as we go through this, that you would inhabit this sermon series, that talking about who we are wouldn't be a self-important uh, enterprise, but it would be a place and a, a manner, a way in which we get acquainted with you and we get acquainted with our own humanity and our own failings, both as individuals and as a church. And Father, I pray that we would more fully cling to the gospel, that we would have greater hope at the end of this series for us as individuals and for our church, that we could be a place where the gospel reigns, where the gospel is central, where the gospel compels us to move as a community into the hurting places of our city and our world. And I pray that as we begin this, this first um, look at what it means to be a community as we engage with Matthew 1 and 28, that you would guide us, that you would be with us that you would teach us what we need to learn. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when someone decides to read through the New Testament, they open where? Matthew 1. And they, it's the first part they get to, and it's the first part they skip. Because, as you could tell when Ben read, it's a little tedious. And that's why I had him read it, and not me. But you're wondering... Why is this here? What is it doing? Well, I don't know. Okay, so scan, scan, scan down. Okay, verse 18. Now, now we're talking. That's better. This makes sense. 
But, you know, the names are unfamiliar. And reading about someone else's genealogy is about as interesting as hearing stories about other people's kids. It's just not that interesting and not that fun. But what we're going to do is not only talk about it in depth, uh, not just read it, we're going to talk about it in depth because it's important and it sets the stage for what Matthew has to tell us. And in fact, we're looking at the opening verses of the book of Matthew and the closing verses of the book of Matthew in order to get our bearings. Because Matthew's gospel begins with the story of Israel leading up to Jesus and then ends with a commission of the church as sort of a new Israel. And it summarizes to some degree the two prominent divisions in Matthew. Chapters 1 through 12 is generally the story of Jesus and his anointing as king. And then 13 through 28 is generally the story of the community that he is founding and that he leaves behind and its commissioning. And one of my favorite, growing to be my favorite commentator on the book, Frederick Dale Bruner, says in his commentary, is two volumes. And the first is on 1 through 12, called the Christ book. And the second is 13 through 28, called the church book. And so I think this will really fit what we're trying to do. So first of all, why is this genealogy here? And why should we care? And how does it give us direction as we consider the fundamentals of in-town church? Well, right from the get-go, things get pretty interesting. He's writing mainly to Christian Jews, so he expects a certain level of understanding of the Old Testament, or what was then the Hebrew Bible, Matthew's Bible. And his first two words in chapter 1, verse 1, are biblios Genesios. He begins by referring to the very first book of the Bible, and he wants us to conclude that he is writing a new Genesis. He's writing a new creation account. And it's not simply this one allusion to Genesis, but it's all over Matthew. Jesus' story is connected to the story of Israel. In fact, it's told as a recapitulation of the story of Israel. We have this stylized genealogy that refers back and would remind us of all those genealogies that are in the book of Genesis. We have five lengthy discourses where Jesus is teaching in an uninterrupted fashion, reminding us of the five books of Torah, the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. We have the Sermon on the Mount, a new law from the mountain, reminding us and calling us back to the law that was given at Mount Sinai. We have Jesus' miraculous birth that is akin to the miraculous births of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Jesus is tempted 40 days in the wilderness in the same way that Israel wandered and was tempted for 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus' water crossing and baptism is like the Exodus. It's like Israel crossing over the water in the early books of the Bible. So that's interesting, right? It gives us a little bit more curiosity about this passage as we start to think about it. I was talking to someone in the middle of the service after Ben read, and he said, I'd like to see you do something with that passage. So we're going to try. And that gives us some bearings, right? There's some interesting things going on. But notice who's in these genealogies. Okay, we have Abraham, we have Isaac, we have David. We have Jacob, we have Solomon, all of the usual suspects from the Old Testament. And we would think, okay, those are the kinds of people that should show up in the genealogy 
of Jesus, that he's a descendant of all of the major figures in the scripture. But then there are some people who have no business at all being in this genealogical list. We have Tamar, we have Ruth, we have Rahab, and we have Uriah's wife. Well, why shouldn't these people be there? Well, first of all, they're women, okay? And if you're writing a kingly list in the Old Testament, in the ancient times, you don't include women in the list. And if he was going to choose women, why these four? Why not Sarah? Why not Rebecca? Why not Rachel or Leah, some of the matriarchs of Israel? Well, there's something else. In Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being in Earnest, the hero is asked about his family, and he has to admit that he lost both parents and that he was dropped off at an orphanage in a, in a handbag, and it's to great embarrassment for him. And one of the characters looks at him and says, to lose one, one parent, that may be regarded as misfortune, but to lose both just looks like carelessness. It's a very funny phrase, but even in the modern West, tracing one's family tree is sort of like tracing our pedigree. It's building our identity and where we fit in the world. But in traditional societies, it's a vital part of who you are, who your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents are and where they live. This is incredibly important to declaring who you are in the world. And for kings, it was even more important for genealogies to show the importance and the grandeur and the purity of the line. Well, here we have not only four women, but we have four non-Israelites. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. They were Israel's enemies, and they are in Jesus' genealogy. Ruth is a Moabite, and Uriah's wife is a Hittite all foreigners to the story of Israel who were brought in. And what was designed for Israel, but never fully realized that the kingdom, that the family of God was to include members of all tribes and all nations and all people groups. And this is now canonized in the line of Jesus, in the story of Jesus. It's not just Israel, but it's these people that have been brought in in these strange Ways into the family of God, and they are now part of his story and his lineage. He's a, a king and a friend of all nations, and despite the patriarchal background of the Old Testament, he's including and has an exalted place in his church for women. But there's more. Because not only are these four people women, apart from Ruth, who, though not immoral, was a, a least a bit forward. She was a rule breaker. It kind of, when you read these names, you kind of think of the bumper sticker that women who follow rules rarely make history. Well, that's the case with these four women. Ruth is not immoral, but she's not much of a rule follower. And the other three, however, Tamar describes herself as, disguises herself as a prostitute to be impregnated by Judah. Rahab is a prostitute by trade, a harlot, and probably runs a brothel. Uriah's wife is whom? Anyone know? Bathsheba. Now, I don't know for sure, but I think this is true. Why Matthew doesn't include her name? Is it just for effect so that when you're reading through, you think, wait a minute, who is Uriah's wife? Oh, what? And you have this aha moment. Or 
And this is what I think is more likely, is that Matthew, as this faithful Jew who is now a Christian, is getting this impression from God that God is leading him to write this account, and he can't bring himself to write Bathsheba. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, that's enough, but Bathsheba, and so he writes Uriah's wife. He can't bring himself to conclude or to teach that Bathsheba is the great, 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 whatever, grandmother of Jesus. You can just imagine him sitting there with his pen, because that's what they use, right, pens? Whatever, scribe, uh, feather, inkwell. You can imagine him sitting there and thinking, really, God, these are the mothers of Jesus? These people, foreigners, women, immoral? They are. And this is why we shouldn't skip over this portion when we read it, because it's important. And there's something to take away from this. These are the mothers of women. Does this register with you? Is, this, is the message coming through, through that these aren't people that just make it into the kingdom by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin? These are now the new matriarchs of Israel and of Jesus. They are central parts of his story. While they're not moral exemplars, they're made to be exemplars of the kind of story and the kind of people that are included in Jesus' story. This is the reason that Jesus comes. These are the people that the story is written for. So, why not skip over it? Why does it matter? All interesting things, I hope, at least it was to me. But what is going on and why should we care and how does this land in our life? Well, maybe, unlike Tamar, Rahab, Unlike some of the characters of the Bible, life is going along pretty snappingly, swimmingly for you. You're achieving your dreams. You've got a good-looking spouse. You've got an interesting, fulfilling job. You've got money in the bank at the end of the month. And yet with all of that, all of that, all of that achievement, everything that you've been told to pursue, there are times that you don't tell people about where that inner critic sneaks in and says, get it together. Get it together, man. You're going to blow it. Or you're going into a work meeting and you find your heart rate accelerating and your palms sweating because you're worried about what's going to transpire in that work meeting. And are you going to be able to live up to people's expectation? You take all your allotted vacations, your downtime. You sleep okay at night and yet you still feel exhausted. You feel depleted. You feel like you have no margins. Well, Thoreau says that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What does that mean? It means that we maintain this unified front in public, but behind the scenes we're constantly worrying. Are we, are we doing enough? Are we impressive enough? Are we good-looking enough? Are we, have we done enough in our spiritual lives to achieve this sort of moral purity and maturity and respect and admiration and belonging that we so desperately want. Maybe this strange section of Matthew is exactly what we need to hear. That Jesus' story isn't made up of the winners and the achievers and the doers and the morally outstanding, but his story is full of Tamars and Rahabs and Ruths and Bathshebas. Or maybe, and this could take a little bit more digging, maybe you don't want it to include people like that. 
I mean, it's sort of nice that they have a place in the story, and it's kind of neat to tell people, well, look at our lineage. It has these interesting characters, and there's a room, there's room for people like that in Jesus' family tree. But we try desperately not to be like that, not to need grace like that. We want to be included in the list, but not as Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. We want to be included as Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Mary. When people read our story, we want them to say, yeah, that's why. Look at what they achieved. That's why they belong. That's why they have a seat. Well, how do you know? How do you begin to tell that, though it's kind of interesting that those people have a place and that there's grace enough for them, but it makes us comfortable when we really get close to people like that? It makes us us uncomfortable to think of ourselves like that? Well, maybe it is those sweaty palms and panic attacks. That's what it was for me. That was my clue that I was still trying to measure up, to make the list, that I was spending a great deal of time and energy trying to be on the right end of the bell curve. And that inner critic would sneak up at the most public, most inopportune times and say, Brian, you're about to blow this. Get it together. If you fail now, you'll never live it down. You'll never get over it. And what happens? That fight or flight instinct kicks in. Get out of here. What are you doing? Don't go into that meeting. Don't go into that pulpit. Don't go into that place where you're going to be vulnerable and seen for who you are. Get out of there. But see, what Matthew is telling us is that Jesus came for people at the wrong end of the bell curve. This is where grace is found. In fact, this is where grace pools, at the wrong end of the bell curve. Because grace, like water, flows downhill and it seeks the lowest spot. And that's where people meet Jesus. Maybe there's another sign that Tamars and Bathshebas and Rahabs make you uncomfortable. And it's perhaps that their modern-day equivalents make you uncomfortable. Maybe it's a sign that you only partially embrace the good news of Jesus that goes to the bottom end of the bell curve, is that when those kinds of people show up in church, that it makes you a little bit anxious. And you have a problem making room for people like that. A friend of mine who is a pastor was at a wedding, and it ran really long, as some weddings do, and then they had a lunch afterwards, and it ran really long, as many lunches after weddings do. And he had scheduled a very important meeting at the tail end of when he thought the longest that that wedding and lunch could possibly go, right? And it goes right through that. And he's still there, and he's trying to figure out, how do I get up and leave graciously? So finally, he realizes he's going to be 15 or 20 minutes late, and it's just not acceptable. So he stands up and starts to go. And as he stands up, the person who he had been chatting with the whole time stands up with him as if they're leaving together. And oh, by the way, she happens to be the neighborhood call girl. The pastor and the prostitute stand up together to leave. Now, my friend starts thinking, okay, this is bad enough. But because it was a Saturday and it was nice outside, he had walked to this wedding. And he realizes that he's going to be even later if he walks back to the meeting from the wedding. And he remembers that because this prostitute lives in the neighborhood, that she drives a white Mercedes convertible and that he had seen it in the parking lot. He thinks, oh, I could ask her for a ride and I could almost be on time for the meeting. 
But then when he gets out, everyone in the neighborhood is going to see the pastor get out of the white Mercedes convertible with the local call girl. So instead, he jogs back. And he's running, and he's sweating, and he's late for the meeting, and he's thinking, wait a minute, didn't Jesus get accused of hanging out with prostitutes, with the local call girls, with the tax collectors? And he's thinking, why did I not take that ride? You see, friends, the good news is not only that you have a place, that grace makes a place for you, but this sometimes uncomfortable corollary is that it makes grace, makes room for other people, and oftentimes people that you wouldn't expect. And it's when you see grace going to the most unlikely of candidate that you begin to understand how much you needed it and how far you were from the kingdom. And it could be that your lack of comfort over people like Tamar, Rahab, or Bathsheba being in the story of Jesus in the church is telling you something. And it might be telling you that you're uncomfortable with grace. And that's not unlikely because grace by its nature is uncomfortable. And it shows up in ways that are unexpected and surprising ways. And in fact, it seems like Matthew had to make a place for these types of people because he could have written a standard history, how Jesus' ancestors are the prominent, upstanding patriarchs. But if we believe in inspiration, if we believe that God is guiding his writing, that he's at, he himself is at work in the gospel writer's work, that we see that God is wanting him to tell a story differently than what Matthew would most likely have told were it left to him. The wife of Uriah? Yes, her. Write it down. Even if you can't, write out Bathsheba. Write out wife of Uriah. Because she belongs. She fits in. Yes, her. She's not only invited, she's not included at the last minute. She is somehow astonishingly a mother of Jesus. Now, one last thing, because we have to connect chapter 1 to chapter 28. Matthew's gospel opens where the Old Testament begins with creation and Exodus. And he ends where the Old Testament ends, with a commissioning. Now, in our English Bibles, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's not Malachi. It's Second Chronicles, which we read earlier. And the very last words of King Cyrus we read, and they are a commissioning. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may, their, may the Lord their God be with them. That's commissioning. And that sounds almost exactly like the commissioning that Matthew writes or records in chapter 28. In 2 Chronicles, Cyrus, the king of Persia, has received all kingdoms of the earth, and he commissions Israel to go and rebuild the temple. But Jesus has all authority, not just on earth, but in heaven as well. And he doesn't send Israel to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but in a sense to be the temple. Where? Not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel, but in all nations. 
See, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the new Cyrus and that the church is the new Israel. Matthew is telling the story of Jesus as a retelling of the story of Israel. It's a new beginning. It's a new creation. It starts creation over. Jesus' story is a recapitulation of human history, all of it. It begins now when Jesus is born. That lineage, that that genealogy leads up to a new creation, Jesus being born, and then his life, and then his death, and his resurrection, and his sending of the disciples. That's the story of Israel, done over. He comes to fulfill all that Israel was meant to do, but failed. And of course they failed. Because imagine the task. Imagine being told, as Abraham was, to be a blessing to all nations. All nations. But initially to Abraham, but then developed throughout the Old Testament, is not just to be a blessing to all nations, but to bring the knowledge of God and his salvation, his healing presence to all the world. To be a community where justice and mercy rolls down on all people. Where people, foreigners, women, immoral, are brought into the story over and over, not as the exception, but as the norm. Of course they failed. Because what what a massive commissioning, what a massive calling. But see, Jesus comes and lives and dies and is resurrected, and he begins to relaunch that mission with a tiny little band of nobodies, a tiny little band of disciples to turn backwards everything that is wrong and broken and fallen and exclusionary and proud and self-important about our world. These 12 people are going to do that? But you see, it's not with Cyrus's earthly power that they're commissioned, but it is with Jesus's ultimate all power of heaven and earth. And as he commissions those disciples, he's commissioning everyone that comes after them. And so if we stand in their lineage as the church, the church must be hopelessly, incorrigibly, unrepentantly missional and yet utterly dependent upon power of God. That we are utterly dependent in our little corner of the world seeking with Christ's power to answer how can we be a blessing to our city? How can we include all the types of people that are in the story of Jesus that seem to be so close to the heart of God? How can we go to the low end of the bell curve so that grace will pull there in tangible ways? How can we be a community of healing and justice and peacemaking? How can we use our work and our words to bring delight and mercy and bring the love of Jesus to people in our city? It is because all power in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And then one more word, the last verse, Jesus gives his disciples, his church that he is leaving, not another command, but a word of assurance. And it doesn't come through very well in our translation, but in the old King James Version, he would read, Go ye therefore... Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Lo, behold, look, see, I am with you 
with you. Not I will be with you at some day when he returns. Not someday when you reach heaven, he will be with you. But he is with you now. He says, I am there with you always. Not some of the days, not most days, but all days. Every single day of your life, Jesus is promising to be with you. Every single day of in town's life. As we feel like we're poking around in the dark, wishing for grander visions and bigger things to happen and more people and more resources that we would be better and more stable at everything we're doing. If only we could have X, Y, Z, we could care for all the nations. Jesus says, lo, look, behold, see, I am with you. That he is with us in what's going on now and what will happen and what will come to pass. What will come to pass. Jesus is saying, He is here now and is present in all of our corporate and all of our individual challenges and all the ways that we think that we are alone and all the ways that we think that we don't belong and all the ways that we're still trying to make the list and measure up. He says, I am there with you. And what that means is he is there with grace. Grace pools wherever there is a need. So if you're in need, as our church is in need, we should all go to see ourselves at the bottom of the bell curve and say, God, come, be with us now. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are present, that we do invite you, we long for you, we ask you to come in new ways, that you would plant seeds and flags of resurrection in all of our lives and in this church and our community, but we know that We cannot deny, we can't look um, in a way disparagingly upon the small things, the little things, that there are no little people, that there are no little things that you are doing, that you are doing works of great change and great redemption and things to be celebrated, that you are planting seeds of resurrection in our lives. And I pray that we would look, that we would behold, that we would see, and that we would walk towards those individually, as families, and also as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.